I'm shook. Welcome to the Holly Shook Podcast. I'm Armin, and I'm joined, as always, by my incredible, lovely, my favorite co-host, Ryan Alkair. How are you, Ryan? Hi, Armin. I'm doing so amazing, sweetie. How are you? I'm great. I'm feeling good. Although, I'm going to be upfront and honest and tell you that today's scandal, it's dark. It's very Ugh. dark. Like, darker than... Orlando Bloom and Justin Bieber punching each other in the face. You know, that's that's almost about as dark as it could get, you know, yeah. um, a pop star and uh, a pirate feuding. Pop star and a pirate. <laughs> you could also call him an elf. He d- True. He's very, like, versatile with his acting roles. Incredibly versatile, you know, from one blockbuster to the next. Um, it, this is a tad darker well, I do believe that sometimes we have some dark topics on this podcast, but we're able to make them fun still. Not like make fun of the topic, but like have fun while talking about sad things, I guess. I always I enjoy talking with you, Ray. Thank you. I hope so, because we do it a lot. No matter the topic, we could be talking about tragedy. Uh, we can be talking about uplifting things. It's always a good time. Yeah, we could be talking about healthcare like we were earlier today, which is never fun, but we had fun with it still, somehow. We find a way. We do. We find a way. And so today, uh, we're going to do our best to make it fun, Um, but this is one of the darker, more infamous Hollywood uh, scandals of all time. Okay, well, we already have done murder on here, so I don't know how much darker than murder it can be, but... Should we guess and game it up? Let's start it. Let's g- let's get right into this one. Okay, so it was dark. Um, okay, um, Miley Cyrus twerking at the VMAs. How did you guess it? Right off the bat, right? I mean, it's the darkest scandal in our history. <laughs> wow, Other with no just- clues. I didn't even give you a clue. I just was very vague about it. And I don't know, you just pulled it out of nowhere. Um <laughs> No, it's not Miley Cyrus twerking. It is not. Fine. But <laughs> save that one for later. <laughs> I'll give you a couple hints right off the bat. Okay. The event took place in 1998. And it involves a beloved comic. And I feel like that's a pretty significant clue. Off the bat. 1998. Beloved comic. Mm, okay. But he was more known as a comedic actor. He did stand up, but he was a brilliant character actor. For some reason, I'm thinking um, the guy from Seinfeld, but that was not 1998. No. Yeah. You're thinking, (laughs) are you thinking Michael Richards at the Laugh Factory? When he was racist? Yeah. Yep. That was like 2006, I want to say. Okay. Yeah. No, because I was definitely like conscious, like, and like a normal person when that happened. 1998, I was still a baby. Although, funny, funnily enough, Rai, the Laugh Factory does come into play with this scandal in the aftermath of this scandal uh, for a 2007 incident. Oh, wow. Not the Michael Richards incident. I feel like we always, like, during the guessing game, predict, like, one specific detail that will come into play, but isn't the scandal. Um, Hollywood's uh, interconnected. It's so interconnected. We like to call it incest Hollywood, right? Incest Hollywood. Um, does it involve like murder, racism, like sexual abuse? It involves a murder. Yes. 
It involves a murder? Yes. Is the comedian murdered or is the comedian the murderer? The comedian is murdered. What in the freaking heck? In 1998? In 1998, he was on SNL for a long period. He's extremely beloved. Not Chris Farley, because Chris Farley like died, right, of overdose. Yeah, it's not Chris Farley. SNL. Oh my freaking gosh. I really want to know. I have a feeling wa- you don't know this one. I probably don't, but I want to guess it, even though I don't know it. <laughs> um, I just want to manifest it into my mind without having any prior knowledge of it. <laughs> uh, I'm like annoyed because... I, like, grew up watching SNL, but I grew up watching, like, old SNL. Like, stuff before my time. I was watching it. You have seen this person's work. Here is one more major hint. Okay. He's well known for his spot-on Bill Clinton impression. Is it Phil Hartman? Yes. Was he he murdered? You don't know this, Rye? Wait, no. I I had a feeling you didn't know this. I thought he was still alive, for all I know. Wow. See, Wait, he was murdered? He was murdered, Rye. Wait, what the heck? Yes. Wait, okay, I actually, now that you say something, I have, like, a flash of me maybe, like, reading about this briefly. Maybe while researching other scandals for this podcast, but I don't think I, like, got into it, so I don't really know what happened. This was actually, this event was one of my first forays into celebrity scandal. You're 26. I'm turning 26 in a month and a half. Okay. Well, I'm barely 26. It's been like two weeks. So you could still like say 25 and it'd be fine. <laughs> no one's going to like hold you to it. <laughs> um, I don't know, right? People uh, sleuth nowadays. No, I don't want to be that yet. <laughs> okay. So we're like basically both 25. Right. Yeah. And my parents used to love true Hollywood story. On E, if you remember that show. Oh, I love True Hollywood Story. I always wanted one when I was younger. Like, one day I'll have a THS about me. Although, I don't know if you really want a THS about you, because that usually means that there was a scandal in your life. Yeah, but there were some, like, kind of casual, more casual ones that I would be fine with. They did love the salacious stories. And one of the first ones I remember watching in my whole life is the true Hollywood story on Phil Hartman, and it's just like etched into my brain. I actually rewatched it in preparation for this podcast, and my first thought was, why did my parents let me watch this at like six years old? <laughs> yeah, like looking back, I feel like it's not very like child appropriate. Not at all. Also, if you look back on pretty much everything that we were raised on, nothing was child appropriate. That's why our generation's so fucking weird. And THS in particular, they loved uh, slinging around like wild rumors. Right. I mean, it was E. It wasn't like 60 Minutes or whatever, where it's like all facts. I don't know if 60 Minutes is all facts, but like seems like more legit. Of course. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of investigative journalism going on with 60 Minutes, but like THS pretends it's got that going on. And they have like that great narrator's voice in the background. Right. Where it's like. Phil Hartman's friend had this to say about Bryn. And it's like, it kind of has the air of prestige if you don't know any better. And I didn't know any better. But anyway, all that but being it, like, said. Comes on before like the Kardashians. So it's like, you are trash. <laughs> With all that being said, this scandal was one of the 
first that I remember being interested in, in terms of like the celebrity universe. Okay. And it's a disturbing event. And what's crazy about it is that this incredibly scandalous moment happens to one of the least scandalous celebrities ever. Phil Hartman was a pretty regular guy. And that's according to everyone who was in his life. Uh, he was a regular guy on set. He was a regular guy off set. There was no like hidden, deep, dark secret. Such a wild event couldn't have happened to a more like unassuming guy. Okay, so I'm like so stressed out. So it's not like he like got murdered and then everyone found out he was like part of a prostitution, like drug ring or something. Like he was still like normal. Yep. Okay, I'm still, like, freaking out that he's dead. For some reason, I was, like, thinking he still, like, was in movies. Um, But that would make sense why I haven't heard much about him recently. I'm sorry to break this news to you, Ryan. I'm I'm still reeling, but I'll get over it. All right, let's let's get into it. Because there's a lot of story to tell. Yeah, I'm depressed already. So for the listeners who don't know who Phil Hartman is, I'm going to do, you know, a little background. He was uh, born actually in Ontario, Canada, but he moved to the United States at 10 years old, and he actually had a very unique path uh, to his acting career. He first went to uh, SMC, you know, Santa Monica College. Wait, the one in the Bay Area? Uh, Here in... um... Oh, Santa Monica. (laughs) Fuck my life. I thought you you meant like St. Mary's, and I was like, oh my God, I grew up right there. Um, Okay. Yeah, but SMC, I'm in Los Angeles. Ryan used to live in Los Angeles, so that was a local uh, community college. For all you locals. (laughs) But he dropped out to become a roadie to a rock band in 69. He actually got married in 1970, but that didn't stick. And uh, he ended up going to CSUN in 1972, and he studied graphic arts. And he started his own graphic arts business And he was actually really successful. He created album covers for a bunch of bands, including some well-known bands. Not to me. I don't know any of these bands, but like Poco, America. I've heard Crosby, Stills, and Nash before. I've heard of America. It's like a country. (laughs) But I've heard of it as a band as well. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was going to say like, okay, I've heard of it as a country, Rye. I hope so. I mean, I'm here. You hope I, I know that, where I am. I love that he went to CSUN. That's like, to me, the most random college in the universe. My mom went to CSUN. Oh my God, that's so random. Alumni. Phil Hartman yes, and my mom. I only like it as, I just love the name, like CSUN. <laughs> it's a good name, right? It's a really good name. Yeah, I will say that. For the listeners, it's also another local university. It's in Northridge. That's the N in CSUN. Yeah. And people are like, I go to school in L.A. I'm like, you go to school in Northridge. (laughs) Well, it's in L.A. County. Yeah, but it's like not like in the city. Not in the city. Not Los Angeles, the city. But anyway, (laughs) uh, at age 27 in 1975, Phil Hartman started to go to comedy classes run by the Groundlings. Yes. So Phil Hartman was a Groundling. Speaking of alumni, that has a pretty big network. Yeah, for sure. The Groundlings is like very comedy acting, like where comedy and acting meet, I feel. So that makes sense that Phil Hartman would go there because 
a lot of people felt that he was as good of an actor as he was a comedian, if not better. Yeah. Because he was well, a I, brilliant actor. Yeah, and I believe that comedians are sometimes the best actors because... I forget who it was. It's like Amy Poehler or someone is like, you have to... In order to be funny, you have to be like connected to the like reality of the situation. Otherwise, it's not funny. So that's why a lot of like comedic actors will eventually start having more dramatic roles and they'll be really good in them because you have to be like able to act if you're going to be funny. Right. If you're not believable, you're not fucking funny. So that's why I'm like so hilarious. <laughs> I'm going to be like an Oscar winning actor one day. <laughs> not. Right. You're always so modest. So just humble. I so, let other people compliment me. As you compliment yourself. Mm-hmm. By 79, he was actually one of the stars of the show. Nice. And then he meets Paul Rubens. So for the listeners who don't know, Paul Rubens is Pee Wee Herman. And actually together they created the character of Pee Wee Herman. Wow. And they developed the Pee Wee Herman show. Uh, and the Pee Wee Herman show first aired on HBO. And then, of course, the Pee Wee Herman movie came out. And uh, Phil Hartman co-wrote that movie. And he had a little cameo role in the movie. So that was one of his first big breaks. However, he's still kind of behind the scenes not really getting to like flex his acting muscles and do what he's capable of. That is until Saturday Night Live. Now, now that's Phil Hartman's big break. That's what really gains him a ton of accolades. So yeah. in 1986, he uh, starts at SNL and he is on there for eight seasons. And he becomes really well known for all his different impressions um, especially his impression of Bill Clinton. He actually ends up like meeting Bill Clinton and Clinton was really cool with it and actually like signed a photo for him. Cute. <laughs> so Phil Hartman gains all this respect at SNL from the fans, but most importantly, he gains a lot of respect actually behind the scenes. He actually was nicknamed the glue. Oh, because he was kind of the glue guy of the group. Apparently, he was always doing things to help make the show happen. The little things that maybe the bigger stars wouldn't be willing to do. He would like help other cast members prepare. And he was always really well prepared himself, uh, reading through all the lines thoroughly. And he was never quite the star of SNL, despite having, at the time, its longest run. Having the longest run of any individual eight seasons, and it was like 150 plus episodes or something. He was never the main guy, and often he played ancillary roles, but he always did it so well, and that's the kind yeah. of character that helps really make a sketch. So he was like, not like, I don't know, you always get like the Adam Sandler, the Chris Farley, who's like the huge like cross-genre like movie star. So he wasn't that. He was more just like everyone liked him and knew him. Yeah, and he was actually on the... On the cast with Adam Sandler and Chris Farley. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> I think I did not, actually. Here's a quote from Lorne Michaels, the creator of SNL. He said, Phil kind of held the show together. He gave to everybody and demanded very little. He was very low maintenance. I've heard drama from behind the scenes of 
SNL, it can, it can be very like egotistical and very like, you know, when you get, when you become the big person on the show, you become very like, I'm not doing that and I'm not doing that. And it's nice that he wasn't like that. I don't know who else was like that, but I've heard some nightmarish situations from behind the scenes. Some of these guys have big egos. Right. And it's easy too. I feel like, especially on a show like that, where you become, it's so easy, not easy to become, but when you become the breakout star, like you're the breakout star, you know, of SNL. So I can only imagine people's egos like going through the roof. Yeah. And you start to get a little diva. A little diva. Mm-hmm. Can't relate, but <laughs> I'm sure some people can. No, you're not a diva at all, Rye. Never. Thank you. Especially Thank not you. when it comes to this podcast. No, no, no. I'm always keeping on schedule and never asking to change the time or day. No, no, no. <laughs> I admittedly do that as well. So <laughs> Lauren Michael. <laughs> I think this is the first time ever that we've stuck to our <laughs> scheduled time. We did I it. Like I feel like I'm always texting you like 30 minutes before. I'm like, hey, can we push it back 30? <laughs> <laughs> so back to Phil Hartman. Right. Uh, Lauren Michaels also said actually he was the least appreciated cast member. Uh, by commentators, but Phil Hartman still got a lot of accolades. He won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing um, mm. in 1989. He was also nominated uh, for that same category in 87, didn't win. He was nominated uh, individually in 94 for Outstanding uh, Individual Performance in a Variety or Music Program. So, Fans adored him. He may not have received as much praise or as much attention from critics, but they all respected him and they all appreciated his talent, even if he was still underappreciated. But that's just how much of an enormous talent Phil Hartman was. In the 90s, Phil Hartman uh, started to voice some characters on a little show, a tiny little show. You may have heard of it. Maybe not, because it was very tiny. The Simpsons. Mm. Um, is that like Family Guy? It's it's exact. It's kind of a rip off of that show. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Rip I heard that they kind guy. of like tried to be Family Guy. But tried to really be. Hit that, hit that stride. I mean, okay. it came out like ten years before Family Guy, but somehow was still ripping off Family Guy. Yeah. Trying to be Family Guy. Trying yeah, to be yeah, Family yeah. Guy always. Okay, so he like kind of was on the show. Yes, uh, he appeared in fifty-two episodes. He voiced the recurring character Troy McClure. Did you ever watch The Simpsons? I was never huge on The Simpsons, no, unfortunately. So actually, this uh, Troy McClure character was pretty funny. He was this, like, washed-up actor who mm. who would do really shitty shows in Springfield. None of this is relatable to me. I mean, right, you're in the process of becoming washed up. Yeah, yeah. You're not quite I, Troy McClure yet. I have to do something notable before I can be washed up, I guess. Give it like 20 years. Perfect. It can wait. <laughs> um, Troy McClure, he had this famous line um, where he'd say, you may remember me from films such as. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then you would like list all these films. Um, but they were it all like be- ridiculous titles mm-hmm. and stuff. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Uh, and that was kind of Phil Hartman's shtick, by the way. It was playing that arrogant, smug guy so he was like semi-villainous but not the main evil villain right like just like 
a stupid, like, like not a good person, but like not like a vicious person that they're like bad. They're exactly. Just, like, dumb. But then comes news radio in the mid nineties. Did you ever watch news radio? Oh no. I thought it was a radio show just based on the name. You saw it coming up on TV and you're like, oh, I don't want to watch radio. Right. Yeah. I was like, why would I watch two people talk? Why would I even listen to two people talk? What a waste of time. What a waste of time. Who would do that? Wink, wink. (laughs) So actually, I loved news radio. I didn't watch it when it came out, but it was on syndication. I don't think it is any longer, Uh, but it used to play on TBS all the time. Oh, characters welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Did you do that intentionally? Because you know that's USA, right? Oh, is it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I legit thought I was like being really smart. (laughs) Oh, well, fuck me. Oh, wait, no. um, Okay, TBS. Very funny. funny. Isn't it very funny or is it we know funny? I think it's we know funny. Okay. Or maybe it is very funny. Either way, TBS is a fucking joke. So whatever. (laughs) It's very funny. It's very funny. Characters welcome. <laughs> characters welcome. I'm just going to say characters welcome is every TV station's phrase now. <laughs> Freeform. Characters welcome. HBO. Characters, characters welcome. welcome. <laughs> and like really confidently too, because I was really confident about that. So actually news radio, despite the fact that it didn't have very good ratings, it has a cult following. Yeah, I've like heard of it. I feel like people still refer to it as like um, a classic, but I don't really know what it was about. Like, what is it like a sketch show? No, it's a classic uh, multicam sitcom. Oh, and it is about a radio station, but it's about the dynamics more so behind the scenes. Right, 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 right. And every now and then you see Phil Hartman on the radio and different characters on the radio. Um, but a lot of it is office politics, right? And relationships. Is anyone else notable in it? Do you know? It had a really good cast. Um, Dave Foley, Maura Tierney, Stephen Root, Joe Rogan, Andy Dick. Hmm. Really good cast. I walked by Andy Dick once in Hollywood and I was like, oh my God, that's Andy Dick. Whenever I see someone who's like famous, I like smile and wave at them. Like I know them, you know? So I think I like kind of like smiled at him like, hey, what's up? And he like looked at me like I was fucking crazy. I was like, oh, God, yeah, no, you don't know who I am. But it was fun. I texted my dad immediately after because I feel like my dad would be the only person who would care (laughs) about Andy Dick. Was your dad hyped? He said, that's cool. Love him. (laughs) I was like, all right, cool, dad. This was probably Andy Dick's finest uh, career moment. It's Phil Hartman's. You know, as a sitcom, I actually think it would have worked really well as a single cam show. Mm. Uh, but that wasn't really popular at the time. You only really got single cam shows for dramas, right? Yeah. Uh, and comedies were all multicam. Uh, but, man, if it, if it aired just like seven, eight years later, I think it would have a totally different cultural resonance. Anyway, um... So I feel like we've covered his career and we can move on to relationships and that will take us to the... The murder. So, like I said, um, Phil Hartman, he got married in 1970, but they divorced in 72. He uh, married 
Lisa Strain in 1982, but their marriage only lasted three years. She had an interesting quote in True Hollywood Story. She said that Phil Hartman would over and over again say that he wished to be, quote, anonymously famous. Mm. Which is ironic given what would eventually happen to him. Just so I can, like, rest easy really quick, do we know who murdered him or is it, like, a cold case? You don't have to tell me. Oh, we know. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm going to try to, like, play Clue and be like, who was it? It's going to be pretty obvious. I hope it wasn't Pee Wee Herman. How'd you know? After he masturbated in the movie theater, he directly went and murdered Phil Hartman. His shame. His shame brought him to that point. It was a big day for Pee Wee. <laughs> Pee Wee's big adventure. That's that's what the movie... The movie's based on that. Jesus Christ. Um, so Lisa described Phil as passive and someone who liked to blend in and that character trait is what led them to divorce mm. because he didn't really want to confront the issues and he would kind of just withdraw. Yeah. Then he married Bryn Amdahl. But I want to tell you a little bit about Bryn before um, we get really into their marriage uh, because Bryn uh, was the person he was married to up until his death. Like assuming she's probably the one who killed him, but okay. So she was actually born Vicky Amdahl. Uh, and she was an aspiring model and actress, but she had a very difficult time breaking into the industry. She had a lot of self-esteem issues because of the constant rejection. And apparently she was kind of insecure her whole life, according to friends and family. Feeling like she wasn't good enough. She was never good enough. She was never smart enough. Uh, she was never the most beautiful. So she started to abuse alcohol and cocaine as like a form of self-medication. Classic. In the mid-80s, she checked herself into the Hazleton Clinic, and she got sober, actually. And she had a lot of support from family and friends, and she was able to return to L.A., and she felt she was poised to land some significant roles. Um, At that time, she also started to get into plastic surgery. One of her friends believed she had an addiction to plastic surgery as as a form of replacing her cocaine and alcohol addiction which she had kicked yeah however she was able to get runway work um after getting sober and uh no longer you know doing drugs and alcohol and all that kind of stuff in 1986 and actually by the way just to uh bring back the true hollywood story salaciousness one of uh bryn's friends also at this point she changes her name to bryn Okay. Because she believes the name Bryn would have better success than Vicky. I feel that kind of. Vicky sounds very like, like, mm. like it's very like, I'm Vicky. <laughs> Bryn's like, I'm Bryn. You know? <laughs> so if you were a casting director, you wouldn't cast Vicky Amdahl, but Bryn Amdahl, you're casting. I wouldn't not cast Vicky Amdahl, but if someone walked in right after her and her name was Bryn, I'd probably be like more like, she's a model. And nine times out of ten, that's what happened. Yeah, it's like Vicky and then Ren. But uh, one of her friends told THS, she was like, Bryn didn't have a lot of money, so she started to hang around men who had money or, or who had coke because she needed coke all the time. Mm, yeah. And she's like, you know what 
what you have to do if you're a woman who is seeking coke from a, a man who either has it or has the money to get it. You end up having sex with them, despite the fact that you normally wouldn't even eat pizza with the same guy. Oh, my God. And I was like, you were Bryn's friend? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is how you're talking about her? Okay, well, to be fair, I'm assuming Bryn is a murderer. So I guess, like, you can kind of, like, talk a little bit more shit about her after she's killed someone. We'll get there, Rai. We'll get there. <laughs> but you, you... I'm just assuming if we're getting her whole history that she's probably the fucking murderer. Detective Rai. So in 1986... Bryn uh, meets Phil Hartman on a blind date, and they are introduced by Victor Dre, who was a restaurateur. Um, You may have heard of Victor Dre because he is actually in the nightclub Hall of Fame. He has Dre's Restaurant, which has multiple locations. Um, He has clubs in Vegas. He's actually a pretty big deal himself. But yeah, he introduces Bryn and Phil Hartman in 86. I like that you think that I would know that there's even a nightclub. Club Hall of Fame, just in general. You don't know the nightclub Hall of Fame? No, I don't think I've ever been to a nightclub. Keep up with the Hall of Fames, Rye. You there's know, there's a basketball, there's a rock and roll. There's a drag race Hall of Fame. There is. I know that one. Wasn't uh, Trinity just inducted? Trinity and Monet. There was a and double Monet. crowning. It was a whole drama. I remember. I remember. <laughs> I remember what happened two weeks ago. Yeah, I was like, from two weeks ago. <laughs> Honestly, though, every two weeks feels like 10 years in, in today's world. So In today's world, absolutely. So that's why like, I barely turned 26 two weeks ago. <laughs> well, you're either 26 or 36. Shh. I'm 13. <laughs> um, so according to friends, Phil Hartman was having the time of his life with Bryn. They were really happy together. And when Phil gets the job at SNL, they move together to New York. And at first, Bryn is really happy to go to New York. And she doesn't mind kind of putting her own career on hold for Phil. Okay. And this is after she's like done doing coke and like sucking dick for pizza and stuff. (laughs) Got that a little mixed up. But yeah, this is after she got sober. Okay, cool, 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 So cool. she is sober, although her friends say that she's addicted to plastic surgery. Right, but like who isn't? But exactly. It's Hollywood, right? It's Hollywood. In a private ceremony, they get married in 1987 in New York, but Bryn still has lots of personal ambition, and she wants to pursue acting in New York, but again, she has difficulty getting her foot in the door. She really thought, though, this time, being around Phil Hartman and having this access to producers, writers, and actors uh, would get her gigs, but nothing was happening, which really started to frustrate her. Do you think that she, like, really liked him because she hoped that he would help her career, or do you think she really actually liked him? I started to think that at certain points, but I'm only skeptical of that theory because... She met Phil before he got famous. Okay. Like, yeah, he was in the industry, um, had a certain level of success, but I could see that theory coming into play in terms of her sticking around when maybe she wouldn't have otherwise. Okay. Cool. Bitch. (laughs) 
So her friend on a True Hollywood Story said that she would say, that Bryn would say, it was always a big letdown when photographers would take photos of Phil on the red carpet and not take shots of the both of them. So she's kind of getting jealous too, which which is a bizarre feeling to have towards your significant other. Yeah. I feel like that's like a hard in that industry is something that you have to like be really confident with yourself to not have. Like I feel like it actually could be really easy to be jealous of your significant other if their career kind of starts taking off and yours doesn't. But it's just like a confidence thing, I think in the end. I know it's common, but I feel like it's not a great recipe for success. Right. No, it's not a good thing, but I I feel like you have to be like very confident in yourself and your relationship to not have that feeling come into play. Um, Because with all of Phil Hartman's success at this time, like I mentioned earlier, he's being nominated for Emmys. Uh, His castmates love him. The critics appreciate his aptitude for comedy and his character work. Um, Like with all of that going on in his life, that's that's the time when a significant other should be incredibly happy yeah for their partner yeah because of all these things going right but she's not quite there um it's like a bare minimum girl like he's probably making good money right now so like take that and run with it so susan stadner who was a friend of Bryn's, also a substance abuse counselor said that even at one point Bryn called her and told her how uh, she was on the opening credits of SNL. And actually, you can see this footage if you go online where Bryn is in the opening credits with Phil, having dinner with Phil. But you can see in the shot that her long earrings, she's wearing these really long earrings, like a few inches at least, hanging down. And they're swinging, like really violently swinging. And she explained to her friend Susan that the reason why it was swinging like that is because she kept trying to get her face on camera. Uh, but the director was wanting her to turn her face directly to, t- to Phil, but she was pissed because she wanted to look at the camera and, and get some camera time on and the opening is- credits of SNL. Oh, my God. Why is she so crazy? So the director wanted Phil to be the focal point. So right. he's like, turn your head, turn your head. And the reason why the earring is swinging is because she had just turned her head. It's swinging, and they were able to get that shot, the one shot. It's like, girl, you're not on SNL. Why would you be like in the credits? Well, she was looking for fame in any way she could. She sounds fucking psychotic. And when she couldn't, she would actually try to torture Phil psychologically. According to SNL writer Donna Kaufman, Bryn would time arguments for right before crucial dress rehearsals at SNL. Quote, she comes in and starts sitting on all the guys' laps and kissing them and putting her tongue in their ears. And everyone thought, oh, isn't this funny? And I thought, how could she do this to Phil? This is so humiliating to him. And he's laughing like he didn't care. How could you not care? End quote. Ew, uh, that's so weird. (laughs) And that's not the only story of Bryn trying to humiliate Phil because, frankly... She was envious of him. Yeah. So like I said, in 89, Phil wins uh, an Emmy as a writer. Also in 89, Sean Hartman is born, their son. 
Oh, dear Lord. This can't be good. And I know you like to make fun of celebrity kids' names, but I feel like you're down with Sean. That one's normal. Um, I do have a younger brother named Sean. Um, so is it spelled S-H-A-W-N or S-E-A-N? It's an S-E-A-N, Sean. Okay, that's how my brother um, spells his. And famously growing up, we would call him Scene instead. Um, and then one time when we went to a restaurant, you know, like we would always fight about who name we got to put in like for our name for the reservation so one time we went up and we were like oh you can put it under scene and sean didn't know that we did that (laughs) when it was our turn they were like scene party of seven scene party of seven and we all started laughing and sean started crying at the restaurant (laughs) and i'll never forget it it was our best prank to date (laughs) that that's a great one i love it i love psychological torture So yeah, I can still I can still make fun of scene Hartman, I guess, in a way. To this day, your brother doesn't even use the word uh, scene, that does he? He still never said the word. Yeah, <laughs> he avoids it at all costs. You've traumatized him from the word scene. Yeah, when anything in like his school or his friends say, "Oh, did you? I seen that." Nobody yeah. would say, "I seen that." <laughs> I see. I seen that. No, but if they said, "Sean, have you seen this?" He no. freaks out. He convulses. Scene party of seven. I'm still scarred. <laughs> um, but also in 89, Phil Hartman's ex-wife, Lisa Strain, sends a congratulations card to Phil on the birth of Sean, right? Oh, God. I'm sure Bryn hated that. She wasn't a fan. Here's an important note. Phil and Lisa kept in touch, and they were actually close friends. Okay. They had an amicable split. Bryn was not happy about that. In fact, Bryn once asked Phil if Lisa was his soulmate, and he said yes. He really loved her. Okay. But it didn't work for her. It didn't work for Lisa, the relationship. Because like I said, Phil was reclusive. Everyone said this. In his private life, he was a somber dude. And then in front of the camera, he he could play any character. Do you need yeah. him to be the arrogant jerk? He can do it. Do you need him to be Bill Clinton, Frank Sinatra, whoever? He can do that. But he was a quiet, reserved guy in his private life. Okay. So in response to this congratulation card, Bryn sends a four-page letter with violent threats, threatening to kill her, saying, if you ever come near my husband, I'm going to kill you. Casual. So Lisa calls Phil. And says, do you have any idea who you're married to? Because she wasn't sure that Phil had any idea about this letter and, and possibly about her character. Uh, so she kind of calls him as, as a warning. And Phil said, well, yeah, you should have seen what she wanted to send you. Apparently, the first draft was way more violent. Oh, my God. I love that she like lets him like proofread it. <laughs> like, hey, babe, can you look over the grammar of this? I'm just threatening to kill your ex-wife. He's like, oh, yeah, give me a sec. And Phil's like, okay, take out that violent threat. You can leave that one and take this yeah. one out. Eh, that one's okay. He's like, I would just switch around the first sentence and the fifth just to make it a little stronger to get the point across. This is grammatically incorrect, but I'll let it slide. <laughs> She's not going to get the threat if you use that phrasing. <laughs> it's so weird. Phil Hartman was also a well-known uh successful copy editor so that's where that talent came into play so it makes sense that she would want that 
from him. I also just made up that fact. Oh, I believed it. You could had me fooled. I mean, as a graphic artist, I'm sure he had some experience in copywriting. There's some layover, like. So in February 1992, their daughter Bergen was born. Okay, sorry. One more time. Bergen, B-I-R-G-E-N. I'm not allowing you to make fun of this. Yeah, I'm just going to let that one. We're leaving the kids alone this time. Yeah, I feel like it's, they've gone through enough. So in 1994, Phil, after eight seasons, like I mentioned earlier, uh, he decides to leave Saturday Night Live uh, to do news radio. And Phil and uh, Bryn move back to Los Angeles. Bryn felt like this could ease their tension and possibly uh, jumpstart her career because at first Phil was going to launch his own variety show and he was going to cast her in it in a leading role because he actually really did believe in her talent. Okay. But that didn't work out. So he ends up doing news radio. And like also at this point, like it's been like eight years, like he's been on the show for eight years and she still hasn't done anything. It's like, girl, like maybe like choose a different career path. Not like give up on your dreams, but like, I feel like she's re- relying on him to get her the part or something or to cast her. Like, I don't know. That just rubs me the wrong, like it rubs me a weird way. He did help out a lot. He always tried to get her roles. He would um, connect her with different people, but she just couldn't close the deal. And he only had so much pull. It wasn't like he was producing his own movies or TV shows. And once he did finally get a chance for his own variety show, he did cast her, but the show never aired. Right. So it's like you can only he can only get you into the room like she has to be able to have her talent do the rest. But it obviously wasn't working out. You know, if his career continued and it, and it continued to grow as it was, then maybe he could have been in a position where he could uh, be an executive producer and have more say in who gets casted. But he never reached that level. Right. Um, with Phil's soaring success with news radio. Like I said, it may not have had the highest ratings, but it was a very well-liked show and his performance was always lauded by critics. Okay. So you have news radio. He's starting to appear in movies. He appeared in a movie called Greedy with Michael J. Fox. He's having other TV appearances. Bryn starts to get even more resentful and more jealous and more needy apparently as well. And because of this, Phil starts to pull away from her. Rightfully so. And actually, on the Joe Rogan podcast, he had D- Dave Foley on, who was another cast member on um, News Radio. And they talked about Phil Hartman on the podcast. And they said that they talk with Phil about divorce all the time. And they would try to convince him to divorce Bryn. And they said one time they were at a bar. And Phil showed up with Bryn, and this is a quote from Joe Rogan. He said, quote, Bryn was saying the creepiest shit and insulting him and talking about how she likes pickup trucks because they remind her of boys she used to bang back when she was younger and just torturing him, end quote. Ew, she's gross. Yeah, a lot of people in Phil's life didn't like her. He's a poor guy. Yeah, he was just so infatuated with Bryn, and... No matter what people told him about her, he still stuck by her side. Apparently, she was a great mother, and that was very important to him. 
and he didn't want to lose the kids, according to Dave Foley. He was worried about that if they got divorced. So he never really seriously entertained divorce until uh, about 97, and we'll get there. So really quickly, before we get to 97, it's important to note that Bryn did have a few minor roles here and there, but nothing substantial. She, she also wrote a screenplay, but nobody would buy it. Um, and she did finally land a role, a big role in a play, but she dropped out of the play shortly before opening night because she wanted to spend more time with her kids. Okay, so she's the fucking worst. She had a chance right there. I'm not sure if that play would have launched her career, but she but it would have been something. <laughs> it would have been something, but she wanted to spend more time with her kids, which I understand, by the way. I mean, yeah, but also, like, plays are, like, at night for, like, three hours, girl. Like, But aren't rehearsals time-consuming? Well, yeah, but if she dropped out right before opening, she was obviously going to rehearsals and stuff for a while. Yeah, I don't know, Rye. It's, it's all so strange. Bryn's friend on THS, she wished to be identified as Rachel. So she didn't give out her real name, but you, you actually did see her face. It's kind <laughs> of a, a funny, kind of, like, on the brink of the internet moment. Because she probably didn't realize that uh, at some point in the near future, if you have your face shown, that people could pretty much find you. Yeah. No matter what. Even if you have a fake name. Because you know, like, usually when they do the the shadow figure. Yeah, like the voice. Voice, voice distortion. Yep. Like Binksy moment. Yeah, that's when, like, somebody really doesn't want to be seen. And she's like, you know what? You could show my face, but I want to be known as Rachel. Her real name's, like, Rochelle. And she's like, but Rachel... <laughs> I just I think Rachel's a bit more exotic than Rochelle. <laughs> Bryn and Amal. <laughs> um, but Rachel had this little nugget. Uh, she said that Bryn told her that uh, she and Phil only had sex twice a year, and she was the one initiating sex every time, not Phil. Hmm. That's kind of strange. Which actually contrasts to Phil's earlier marriages, uh, because according to his biography, You May Remember Me, uh, is the name of the biography, he loved sex and had sex all the time. Like, his first marriage apparently was so compatible because they both liked to have sex nonstop. Yeah. And he apparently bragged to friends that he finally found a girl who loved sex as much as he did, and she talked about how, like, they explored things sexually that they never explored before, so like it's it's seems uncharacteristic for Phil to basically be abstinent. And also like, okay, so if they're having sex like twice a year, but they have two kids, do they just like get fucking lucky every time they have sex? Like, does she get pregnant every fucking time they have sex? This this is around the mid nineties. Okay, so this is like later in their marriage they stop having sex. Okay. Exactly. So that's a sign. But Bryn starts abusing both alcohol and cocaine and actually on Mother's Day, 1997, she came home blacked out, and Phil Hartman was pissed. Oh, come on. It's Mother's Day. Let her live. I mean, it is Mother's Day, right? Just kidding. So at that point, he persisted that she go to rehab, and this is when Phil starts contemplating divorce, and Bryn was actually interested in getting divorced as well, but they never went past the point of just talking about it. Yeah. And apparently they didn't really talk about it with each other that much either. It was always like a threat. Like, if you don't change, I'm going to divorce you. 
It's very healthy. So because Phil is saying, I may, I may leave you if you don't get yourself clean, she does go to rehab, like I mentioned, but because she misses her kids, she, she leaves after only a few days. So she likes leaving things for her kids, is the trend I'm getting. Yeah. And at this point, what was going on in Phil's private life was starting to bleed a little bit into his work life. Now, Phil and Bryn did a pretty good job of keeping all of this secretive to the public, and it was never tabloid fodder, their relationship. Yeah. But on the set of news radio, he would uh, talk to castmates like Vicki Lewis, for example, who had similar problems with her partner, Nick Nolte, who infamously had a lot of drug addiction issues. Yes. And Bryn also had a reputation for being violent. She would hit him, she would throw things at him, and Phil would arrive on set with scratches on his face. Uh, Yeah, or he'd come in really exhausted and looking absolutely beat because he would sleep on his boat instead of sleeping at home because she'd kick him out or he just couldn't stand being around her in her like violent, drugged-out states. Fair, fair. So, over the course of 97, 98, Bryn can't stay sober. Uh, But many people in their lives, even family and friends, believed they were happy. But like I said, they just always kept things so discreet. In May 1998, Bryn actually made plans to check into Promises. Uh, Yes, iconic. Anyone who's anyone goes to, to Promises for rehab. It's a very famous, exclusive, extremely exclusive rehab center in Malibu. Also, I'm pretty sure that's the rehab center that Bradley Cooper checks into on A Star is Born. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's where they shot it. Absolutely. And if it wasn't shot there directly, then it was definitely inspired by Promises. Yeah, yeah. A couple more notes, um, and this this, it'll make sense why I'm I'm telling you these notes uh, in a moment, but on May 26th, uh, Bryn left a voicemail for her friend Lynn Stewart and actually heard the voicemail. It was played on True Hollywood Story. And Bryn asks if she'd like to go see a play with her on Friday, May 29th. She seems really happy. Bryn also makes plans for her and Phil to spend the following Monday together at a spa. Their friend, Stephen Small, asked Phil how things were going with him and Bryn. And according to Stephen Small, Phil told him, quote, it's as good as it's ever been, end quote. I find that hard to believe. Apparently it was. If you hear these voicemails and the way they were talking to friends, they were planning all these vacations, things seemed okay at least, right? Like maybe they were progressing towards something. But we get to May 27th, 1998. Bryn goes to an Italian restaurant called Buca di Peppo, in Encino, California. Oh my God, that's where you live. In fact, that Buca de Peppo is maybe three minutes away from my house. Oh my God, I've never been to Buca de Peppo, so I would love to come when I visit next. I've I've been to the, this exact Buca de Peppo a million times, and apparently Phil and um, Bryn would go would go there together a lot. They actually lived like a block away. Okay, cute. Uh, and Phil was actually a big part of the Encino community. He was an honorary sheriff in Encino. 
Oh my god, so random. So Bryn is there May twenty seventh with uh, a friend, Christine Zander, uh, who said after the fact that Bryn was quote in a good frame of mind. And actually, Christine Zander was a producer on the sitcom Third Rock from the Sun. Yes, yes. According to Christine and the bartender at Buca de Pepo, Todd Red. I love that we know the bartender's name. <laughs> yeah, they interviewed him. Um, yeah. She only had two Cosmopolitans over the course of two hours. Okay. Very casual night then. Casual, casual. Uh, she has two Cosmopolitans and, and leaves. And in fact, Christine Zander said that they made plans to see each other the, the next weekend. Okay. Todd Red had this to say. Quote, the only thing unusual was she was there without Phil. But Bryn and Christine, quote, seemed to be having fun. They were smiling and laughing. Around 9.45 p.m., they got up to leave. And he said, goodbye. It was good seeing you. And according to Todd Red, uh, she responded, quote, I'll be back real soon, and I'll be sure to bring Phil next time. I feel like she's overcompensating. I think you know what's coming. I think I know. <laughs> At 10.15, and by the way, this was, so this next note, I just want to point this out for the listeners. This next piece of information was only according to one source. No other source had this piece of information, and I'm not sure if it was just omitted because it's like not that crucial to the overall story, um, but the New York Post had it. So I feel like it's important to include if we want the full timeline here. Um, but I also wanted to recognize that for whatever reason, it's not in most articles about about the event. Okay. And it wasn't mentioned on True Hollywood Story either. Okay. Yeah. Take that for what it is. At 10.15, she goes to an old friend's house, Ron Douglas. And according to Ron, she complains about Phil being really absent and, and saying that he prefers to hang out with his other friends and she she hated that he loved to smoke weed and he was constantly smoking weed. We love that she's like, he's like smoking weed all the time, but I'm just like doing cocaine and getting blackout drunk. Like, but why does he get to smoke weed? It's like, uh, probably because you're coming home on a coke blackout and like throwing things at him and he needs to like chill. Just a hypothesis. Dave Foley said that Phil had a one hitter. And he would just go in his car and get really high. I mean, who cares? As long as he's doing his job. Oh, yeah. It's not a big deal. But Bryn was apparently upset about it. She drank three beers at Ron's house. According to Ron Douglas, Bryn left and didn't seem especially intoxicated. And when Bryn leaves, she goes back home. But when she gets home, she gets into a heated argument with Phil. And Phil threatens to leave her if she started using drugs again. And after he threatened to leave her, he actually just goes to bed. He goes to sleep. And this sort of dynamic, this exchange was extremely common between the two of them. So according to their friend, Stephen Small, he said, quote, Phil had made it very clear that if she started using drugs again, that would end the relationship. She had to get amped up to get his attention and when she got amped up he would simply go to sleep he would withdraw and in the morning he'd wake up and everything would be fine oh my god phil's response to bryn getting violent or heated 
uh, is very similar to his response in relationships, going back to his relationship with Lisa Strain, right? He doesn't like confronting issues, so he just becomes a recluse. He pulls away. And Bryn would kind of exacerbate that issue. So that night, while Phil Hartman slept, Bryn enters the bedroom around 3 a.m. on May 28th now, right? With a handgun. (laughs) Fatally shoots him in the head twice and once in his side. Oh my God. Uh, Were the kids in the house? Do we know? Both the kids were in the house and sleeping. Oh my God. Um, Uh, Later, uh, Sean would tell police that he heard a noise that sounded like the slamming of a door. Bryn freaks out. She really freaks out. She's hysterical. She leaves and she drives to Ron Douglas's house. And she confesses to killing Phil Hartman. But he doesn't believe her. I mean, he just saw her, right? Right. He just thinks this is ludicrous. But he agrees to go to their house to check things out. So he follows her home. And when they get home, actually, Bryn calls her sister and confesses to to killing Phil. Um, According to Oxygen, in a retrospective, Bryn said... Quote, oh my God, he's dead. I told you I did. I told you I did. I killed him. I killed him. I don't know why. Oh my God. This bitch is crazy. She tells uh, her sister, she said, tell the children that I love them. So Ron Douglas gets inside the house and he goes inside the bedroom and he sees Phil Hartman there dead. So he calls 911 immediately. It's 6.20 a.m. at this point. And... The police arrive, and they escort Douglas out of the house, and they try to escort the children out of the house. Actually, according to the LA Times, in an article written on May 29th, because I saw different accounts of this, but I feel like this LA Times article has it right, and a few other publications reported it this way. Some publications wrote that the police escorted both children out, but the LA Times said when the police arrived... Sean was fleeing out the front door. Oh, my God. But we do have footage of them actually carrying Bergen out of the house. And are they, like, babies still? Or, like, elementary school kids? Nine nine and six. Okay. Wow. So they're very young. Yeah. At that time, while apparently the cops are in the house and... The children are already out of the house. Ron has been escorted out of the house. Bryn locks herself in the bedroom, lays next to Phil, and commits suicide. I was going to say, I was like, does she die? Oh, my God. It's a murder-suicide. Dang. That's insane. Yeah, it's really fucked up. It's fucked up on so many levels. Not only do you have, like, the loss of this genius's life, um... But he was also a great person, a great father. And then, on top of it all, you leave these two children parentless. Yeah. Psycho. And she's like, I can't even go to be in a play because I miss my kids. I'm like, what? Yeah. Uh, They would find out that she had not only alcohol in her system, but cocaine and Zoloft. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say she had to have done something more after leaving 
her friend's house. I'm like, you don't murder someone after two Cosmos and three beers. Like, if that's what happened, I would have killed like 500 people by now. It was, it was a bad mix. Yeah, you can assume. And by the way, a lot of people were so shocked. The whole industry was shocked. Neighbors were shocked because they all felt that there were no signs of, of trouble between them. I mean, Phil's closest friends knew, but none of them felt that this was going to be the outcome. Right. I mean, rarely do you assume that's what's going to happen. Even though she did, I would say the only red flag was her sending the letter to Lisa. And she did exhibit some violent behavior. She would punch him frequently and throw things at him. But nobody felt it would escalate to this point. Right. Oh, my God. Uh, A friend said that Bryn, quote, had trouble controlling her anger. She got attention by losing her temper. Yeah. Which fits in with what Stephen Small said, right? It seems like all this girl wanted her whole life was just attention, and she would do anything for it. Actor Steve Gunberg said that they were a very happy couple, and they always had the appearance of being well-balanced. So all these issues, they were so behind the scenes, and again, Phil was not a salacious dude. He did not have a single scandal on his record in his whole life as a celebrity. There was no issues with him. He was a good coworker. He was the glue guy. The, everyone at the Simpsons loved working with him and they always tried to, you know, let's get some more Troy McClure in there. Like let's, let's give Phil more parts. Like he, w- he was an easy person to be around. And it's not like this scandal was his, whole f- his fault either, but it, for this to be the manner in which he died was so utterly shocking. Right, he like seems so normal, but it's like such a abnormal like event. Very bizarre. Oh my god, that's depressing. Yeah, and actually, their neighbor Susan Kaplow, who was also friends with Bryn, said that quote she left me a really happy message yesterday. Everything was fine. We leave each other silly messages all the time. End quote. Clearly, this wasn't in Bryn's plans. She. She had made a plan for her and Phil to go to the spa on on Monday. She was making plans with friends on a Friday. This seemed like she snapped a heat of the moment. Yeah, like crime of passion, but like not really, you know, because yeah. there wasn't like a big impetus for it. I guess Phil threatened to leave her again, but that wasn't unusual. Yeah, that was a common occurrence. Um, in their in their many tiffs over the course of the prior two to three years. Yeah. Um, but the concoction, a lot of people speculate it's, it was the concoction of drugs. And like you said, she, she may have just snapped. Yeah. I mean, she seemed unstable, so not surprised. Uh, one more quote from film director Joe Dante, who actually worked with Phil Hartman on the film Small Soldiers. He said that Phil told him, quote, I have a plane, I have a boat, I have a great house, I have a great family. In fact, I have everything I ever wanted. It feels great. Well, obviously not, sir. Uh, A wrongful death lawsuit was filed in 1999 by Bryn's brother, Gregory Omdahl, against Pfizer, the drug uh, manufacturer of Zoloft. Okay, interesting. And... 
uh, the child psychiatrist Arthur Sorowski, who provided Zoloft to Brin. Did they win? They settled. Okay. They did settle. In the aftermath, right, you have the lawsuit um, against the manufacturer of Zoloft. You also have the fifth and final season of News Radio, but without Phil Hartman. Actually, I read this great piece by this news radio super fan named Brett White, and he talks about the season five premiere called Bill Moves On, uh, which is about Bill McNeil's death. Phil Hartman played Bill McNeil, mm. and apparently it's just super raw. It was filmed just a few months after Phil Hartman's death, and the episode plays like a real-life grieving process. Yeah. Interesting. That'd be kind of interesting to see. Yeah, apparently it's like a very devastating episode of TV to watch, and it happens on a multicam sitcom. But they still try to throw in the jokes there, the classic wit- really witty news radio jokes. Yeah, um, but it's like secretly really sad. Yeah. Then you have one of Phil Hartman's best friends and uh, former castmate on SNL, John Lovitz, who actually replaces Phil on news radio. Um, mm. But he was devastated by Phil's death. And he got super pissed at Andy Dick because he accused Andy Dick of reintroducing Brent to cocaine. Mm. She was sober for like over 10 years. Yeah. Now there's different reports on when she got back into cocaine. We know she started to abuse different substances starting a couple years before the incident. But at Phil Hartman's New Year's Eve party in 1997... So a mere five months before the incident, uh, yeah. according to witnesses, Andy Dick and Bryn did coke together. People saw them go into a bathroom together. Mm. And there's not much else they could be doing in there. Right. Um, Andy Dick says he doesn't remember doing that at all. Um, and he also says that he had no clue that Bryn had struggled with cocaine before he didn't know that she went to rehab and had all those issues in the early 80s so he go he basically says like i didn't do it but if i did do it i didn't know that she had problems so if i did do it don't be mad right so that's confusing but john lovitz is convinced that andy dick did it so actually in 2006 uh john lovitz approached andy dick and according to lovitz andy dick said to him quote I put the Phil Hartman hex on you. You're the next one to die. So John Lovitz like shoves him twice into the bar, apparently. And this is at Laugh Factory? No, but a year later at the Laugh Factory, John Lovitz goes up to Andy Dick and he wants Andy Dick to apologize for what he said about the Phil Hartman hex. And so Andy Dick says, I don't remember saying that. And then, apparently, according to Lovitz, Andy Dick leans in and says, you know why I said it? Because you said I killed Phil Hartman. And then John Lovitz smashes, grabs Andy Dick by the head and smashes his head into the bar four or five times. And apparently, like, blood was just spurting out of Andy Dick's nose. Oh, my God. It's, like, so dramatic. John Lovitz despises Andy Dick. I love that. He, he believes Andy Dick was responsible for Phil Hartman's death. Interesting. Uh, Andy Dick in 2007, later in 2007, was interviewed by Tom Green. Uh, yes, Tom Green. <laughs> and uh, he said, 
in regards to giving Bryn Coke. He's like, I don't know if I did or not. But then later in the interview, he's like, he kind of admits it because he gives explicit details of how she asked him for Coke and how he had no idea about her history with substance abuse. It just seemed like way too vivid of an explanation for it not to be true. Yeah. Yeah. So he probably did it. So he probably did it. Um, but he goes on to say that actually in early 1998, he, he went to rehab for cocaine abuse. Mm. And he starts crying because he said Phil was the only person to call him in rehab. And he's like choking up and he's like breaking down saying he loves Phil and Phil was his quote surrogate father. Oh. But he said Phil called him to check up on him and he also asked Andy Dick if the rehab center that he was in was a good place for Bryn to go to. So he knew about Bryn then. At that, well, at that point, he knew about Bryn, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that was post New Year's Eve. Oh, okay. okay, okay. Right? So like yeah. ni- New Year's Eve 1997 um, yeah. is when they did code together. And then, obviously, the murder-suicide takes place May 28th, 1998. So within that five-month span, Andy Dick actually goes to rehab himself, and Phil Hartman is looking to check in Bryn. Interesting. Uh, a couple more notes. Um, Bryn's sister, Catherine Omdahl, uh, raised the two Hartman children, and um, they seem to be doing well. Like, I just looked them up, and they seem to be doing well. And um, in accordance to uh, Phil Hartman's will, his body was cremated, and there's like a plaque at Forest Lawn Memorial, which is also in Los Angeles. And actually what's interesting is in June of 98, both families came together for a memorial service. That was for both Phil and Bryn. Interesting. So it's like they wanted to put everything aside for the kids, it seemed like. Yeah. yeah. And John Lovitz was there and a bunch of Phil's friends were there alongside uh, Bryn's family and... They, they have a shared plaque. So they're not buried together because they were both cremated, but they, they have a plaque at Forest Lawn. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> anyway, I mean, that's the whole scandal. I don't know, right? Thoughts? It's very depressing. Right. Um, I feel like it seems like normal, like not normal, but like the whole lead up to it is very like, okay, like that could have just been like a rock story of a rocky relationship but dang does it take a dark turn at the end i like feel weird having i feel weird how many jokes they made throughout the whole thing now <laughs> there were times where it was appropriate to make it light but at the end it's it's an upsetting tragedy yeah and i didn't know she killed herself so that's like it was a shock to me yeah she did a sad sad tragic shock <laughs> oof it's it's so unfortunate, you know, and yeah, you have Especially to with wa- like not like this is the only reason, but to not know like what else you could have done, you know, like when someone with so much talent, like I think like Amy Winehouse, Chris Farley, like people who are so I, like amazing and so young in their careers still when they passed away, like they what what would we have gotten? You know, I think he had a lot to give creatively career-wise and you think about the kids that's the that's the part about the story that hurts me the most is that in one night one instance these two kids lose both their parents right that's so sad yeah 
and in the most disturbing way possible with them in yeah. the house while they're like downstairs or whatever yeah oof i don't like that at all honey yeah i'm glad that they seem to be doing well now yeah i'm definitely gonna google them yeah because i want to know about them i'm glad i didn't make fun of bergen's name because i feel bad for her now but um it is kind of a ridiculous name but i'm hoping they're okay i mean well i was just doing the math in my head which you guys know i'm not very good at and like they're probably around our age like they're just like a little bit older than us if they were like six and nine in 98 she was born in 92 and he was born in 89 so yeah so yeah, she's like, 27 he's 30 right which is like dang so that's crazy yeah it's oh it's just it's unfathomable it's it really right. is and Bryn had agency no doubt but you you would like to hope that this tragedy was totally preventable you know whether it was yeah. her getting more help um why did this psychiatrist give her Zoloft? Right. Who around her was was giving her cocaine? Yeah. Uh, and again, I mean, it was her choice, but... They were outside There factors. were some enablers, right? Yeah, that probably, like, led to it. You know, and, and Phil has no blame in any of this, but right. of course, you know, man, like, they weren't happy for a while. And right. maybe they both would have been happier if they had divorced. Yeah. And and maybe she would have been happier. He would have been happier. Again, not an excuse, no blame being put out there. But it's it's such an utter tragedy that it just feels so preventable. Like it just shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have went down. No, I'm very upset, and I am surprised I didn't really know about this because this seems right up my scandal alley. Comedians and murders. I mean, I love both of those things, but maybe this one was too sad for me to want to know about. But now I it will never leave my brain. It's yeah, it's one that never left mine. Like I, I remember as a little kid watching the True Hollywood Story, and I think my parents really liked Phil Hartman on SNL. Yeah, it was just one of the first infamous celebrity moments that really stuck with me. Yeah, it may have been one of the things that propelled my interest in celebrity scandal. Right. We all we all have our first scandal that we love. I feel like I remember like my first like murder that I was obsessed with. So that could be it. It's a very dark one to get started on as a young child. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's really dark. I'm like don't know how to segue out of this. I'm like trying to like lighten it up again. <laughs> I mean, this is it. We got to end on a dark note, right? We're not we're not going to lighten it up. No, I want to lighten it up, you guys. <laughs> People are going to like finish this and be like Oh no! Well, my day's like really sad now. We're this is this is a day ruiner. This is a full day ruiner, week ruiner, maybe it's Friday weekend ruiner. Well, I guess I guess to lighten it, you could go. Maybe I'll watch an episode of News Radio. Yeah, in in honor, and then laugh, and it'll be like, oh my god, uh, he was so great. I had the Phil Hartman best of Phil Hartman SNL DVD. You're kidding me. I don't have it on me. I don't own any. No, but DVDs, the fact that you even owned it at one point. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, wow. I'm not joking you when I say my dad raised me on SNL. So we had all of the bestas and I would watch his like all the time. And I was more on like the Will Ferrell, like Molly Shannon, like route. But I did have his. I remember watching it. An amazing talent. Yeah. I mean, if you if y'all want to lighten up from from this depressing story, watch some news radio. I actually saw some full episodes on YouTube and I watched one. It was really funny. It was an episode with Jerry Seinfeld as a guest star. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So you could find that. 
and watch some Phil Hartman best of. He was great yeah. on SNL. And shout out to uh, Phil Hartman. He was one of the great comedic talents ever. Yeah. Honor his greatness. And I have some potential scandals for next week. And I have one that's so ridiculous and nothing but a good time. So how about I promise that next week I do my really stupid, ridiculous one. We got to balance out this podcast. Mm-hmm. So for every... <laughs> Like tragedy, we need to have like a silly, stupid celebrity scandal where it's like Orlando Bloom punching Justin Bieber in the face. Oh, I have one that's like even stupider than that. <laughs> silly, to... Sillier than Orlando Bloom and Justin Bieber feuding? Oh, if I even just tell you that, if I just tell you one of the characters in this <laughs> scandal, you'll know how fucking stupid it's going to be. Okay, don't <laughs> tell me because I love being surprised. Yeah, no, I'm not going to tell you, but like it just, I laugh every time I look at the fact that I wrote this one down. All right, uh, right. On that note, <laughs> I feel like this is a great place to leave off. Thank you so much, Rai, uh, for you know bearing with me on on this yeah. journey. I, I know it's it was a rough one. It's an upsetting. And one. thank you um, so much for ruining my weekend. Um, I'm gonna go do a quick cry before I go to work. We'll all be weeping. All right, Thanks Rai. For listening, you guys. This was um, an adventure in itself, and we hope you guys have a good um, rest of your day. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We hope you join us next time.